Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Friday, December 22nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. The Bank of England could start cutting rates next year, and weight loss drugs like Ozempic have been in the news a lot. But are we missing their true potential? They're not just like slimming jabs, but they're actually these really powerful preventative tools. Plus, we take a look at the booming fertility industry in India. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has raised the prospect of cutting interest rates in 2024. He told the FT recently that next year the country needs to throw off its pessimism about the economy. Not too shocking, especially since we saw the rate of UK inflation drop to 3.9% last month and interest rates in the UK are at a 15-year high. But ultimately, it's up to the Bank of England. And one of the bank's governors said this week that uncertainty over the UK's labor market would mean it needs to wait before it can cut rates. The FT has chosen Lars Fjordgaard Jorgensen as person of the year. He's the CEO of Novo Nordisk. Now, if neither one of those names sound familiar, the company's leading drugs probably do, Ozempic and Wegovy. They're game-changing treatments for obesity and were two of the most talked-about medications this year. Here to discuss Jorgensen and the impact of these drugs is the FT's global pharmaceutical editor, Hannah Kuschler. Hey, Hannah. Hi. All right, so tell us a little bit about Jorgensen and his role in establishing these drugs. So you're right to say that he isn't going to be a household name. But I think as Azempic and, and Wegovy have become household names, he's got a really important role because these are drugs that actually have the potential really to reshape society. You know, obesity costs a huge amount to health systems. It costs a huge amount in like missed work days. And it may be the thing that actually pushes us to think more preventatively. They're not just like slimming jabs, but they're actually these really powerful preventative tools. They cut the risk of really serious cardiac events, and those are really expensive things for healthcare systems. So if they can pay for this drug now in order to get that benefit later, that could be really important. I see. So they're looking at these drugs as a kind of preventative measure, That's the health part of this, but how did these drugs become a cultural phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because so so I met Jorgensen a couple of weeks ago uh, in Copenhagen, and he is so not the guy to keep up with celebrity news. But these drugs have become really popularized by Hollywood. She started last year when Kim Kardashian went to the Met Gala. Tell everyone, because see, I know the process it took to get in this. And she slimmed down to that little Marilyn Monroe dress. I tried it on and it didn't fit me. And so I looked at them and I said, give me like three weeks. And I, I Now she hasn't admitted taking them and often celebrities don't. But now the kind of working assumption for most the celebrity watchers is that so many people are on these. It became a big joke at the Oscars this year. Look great. Everybody looks so great. When I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, is Ozempic right for me? And this has obviously driven a demand in, you know, the real world. Yeah, there's a lot of hype. But 
What are some of the criticisms or even the long-term public health impacts of these drugs? Yeah, so in the short term, there's still been huge supply constraints. Part of that is because they basically didn't anticipate the kind of demand there was going to be. And there have been concerns that the way that they're being rolled out at the moment is quite unequal. It seems like celebrities can get even a Zempic, which is focused on diabetes, and you're meant to have diabetes to get, and diabetes patients sometimes struggle to do so. I think in the long term, what they're desperate to do is make it a more equal availability. But to do that, they're going to have to have health insurers cover it more widely, and they're going to have to have government systems that pay for healthcare cover it more widely. And they're experimenting with things. They're proposing ways of sort of like get the drug now, pay for it later when you see the benefits and all sorts of things. But it is an overhanging question. Like, does this continue to be so unequal? Yeah. You know, what does this kind of rise to fame tell us about where the pharmaceutical industry is right now? I think what I find kind of impressive and interesting is that pharma companies have, in many ways, become sort of engines of M&A. A lot of the time, they don't do a lot of the research in-house. They just pick up small biotechs and, and commercialize the products. And Nova Nordisk has been working on this for like 32 years. <laughs> this is the opposite of overnight success and innovation. And so I think that it shows that that's still possible. Eli Lilly as well, one of the longtime rivals, who's the only other company that's kind of level pegging in obesity, has also um, been developing these internally. And so that's maybe going to have some companies to think about their models. Hannah Kushler is the FT's global pharmaceutical editor. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you. This year, India overtook China as the most populated country on the planet. But one of the more overlooked trends is that birth rates have fallen by quite a bit, and fertility clinics have now become big businesses in India. This is the last part of our three-part series on the changing face of India. Today, we look at how the business of fertility has affected one family in Mumbai. Our correspondent, Chloe Cornish, has the report. It took us, like, at least 10 years to conceive. That's Maya, a 38-year-old beautician and mother to Manvi. She's a charming three-year-old going on four, wearing a tiara. Are you a princess? Yes. Her hair is short and fuzzy as a duckling. That's because the family, just back from a visit to a temple in South India, where Manvi and her father Sunil had their heads shaved and donated their hair. The temple is very special for the family because Manvi was conceived six months after they first visited it. Maya shows me photos from before and after. We try to recreate the same pictures without her and with her. So she keeps asking me, Mama, why I'm not in the picture? So we, that's why we created the whole thing. So we have to tell her, you're in my tummy, we went there. Maya had to endure an agonising obstacle course of pills and poor medical advice before she became pregnant. The beginning, I started uh, doing my treatment in a Gowanhorn hospital. But the condition was so bad, so bad. It was like every time going to them, it's like scared and you're shameful. Like, how are you going to open your body front of someone else? And they talk to you so rudely. You're like not human. For a while, Maya stopped trying and started saving money. 
And while she was giving beauty treatments, her clients opened up about their own fertility struggles. Obviously, we talked about a few of my clients and they went to the same doctor. And I said, why not? I can also try it now. I can afford it. That was how she got to know about private doctors, like Dr. Koshal Kadam. So I went there and spoke with the doctor. I was very comfortable. So she was very sweet, like making me understand this can go this way. This will happen this way. When Dr. Koshal opened her clinic in Mumbai 13 years ago, most of her patients came from overseas for surrogacy. But these days, she's busy with local clients like Maya. More and more Indian patients started seeking help. And that's the reason now, even when there are very few international patients coming in, we have a lot of Indian patients themselves who are seeking treatment from us. Women in India are now having two babies on average. That's below the level needed to replace the population. It's a higher fertility rate than places like the US, but it's way lower than it used to be. In the 1950s, the average woman had six children. When I used to hear my parents talking about this, they would be like, in India, it used to be like within a year, married couples would have babies. And now the trend is changing. As education and work opportunities improve, middle-class families are having fewer children and getting pregnant later in life. But because of starting out a little older and other factors like stress, many would-be parents are finding it tough to conceive. The price of in vitro fertilisation is too much for most Indian families. Maya opted instead for intrauterine insemination, where a doctor injects sperm into the patient's uterus. This is much more affordable, at around $100 a cycle. But Maya and Sunil still had to make big sacrifices to pay for it. We cut down everything else, like, you know, no going on holidays, no going on for movies, not even dinners, nothing. Couples like Maya and Sunil are far from alone. The Indian Society for Assisted Reproduction says one in six couples struggle to conceive. Dr. Koshal says business has been booming since the start of the decade. When I started, uh, there were just a handful of centres, you know. And I think that boom was really the reason why we had so many uh, clinics come up offering uh, various services to the uh, patients. But uh, in a way, uh, that also helped because this created the awareness, you know, amongst patients. And uh, now patients have a choice. For investors, this represents a huge business opportunity. Now Indian banks are supporting the mushrooming industry, offering personal loans for fertility treatment. India's four leading fertility groups are backed by private equity investors. It shows how keen they are to profit from the sector's growth. Indira, India's biggest chain of fertility centres, was valued at over a billion dollars when multinational private equity group EQT bought a majority stake this July. Dr. Koshal's clinic is at the smaller end of the industry, but she's busy. She says she sees about 10 would-be parents per day. And in Maya, she has a very satisfied customer. No, I don't have any regrets. I'm glad we did that. Very, very happy about it. For the FT News Briefing, I'm Chloe Cornish. Special thanks to Jyotsna Singh for her help reporting and producing this piece. 
That is it for our series on a changing India. If you missed parts one and two, check out our episodes from December 20th and the 21st to catch up. You can read more on all of these stories at ft.com for free when you click the links in our show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. And hey, we're doing something a little bit different next week. We'll be highlighting the shows of our awesome colleagues here at the FT. Make sure to tune in and see everyone in 2024. The FT News Briefing is produced by Kasha Brusayan, Sonia Hudson, Fiona Simon, and me, Mark Filipino. Our engineer is Monica Lopez. We had help this week from Joanna Gao, Josh Gabardoyan, Breen Turner, David De Silva, Michael Lello, Peter Barber, and Gavin Coleman. Our executive producer is Topher Forges. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio, and our theme song is by Metaphor Music. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.